0: Welcome to Encouraging Truths for Today. We're glad to bring you this message from First Baptist Church in Crockett, Texas. Now, please join us as we learn to grow deeper in our relationship with God and each other. Just tell me, based on your experience, what is the first word that comes into your mind when you hear 2020? What? Ugh. (laughs) Okay. Disaster. Chaos. New decade. Perfect vision. Okay. That. (laughs) Yeah. Perfect vision. Is what most of us would have thought of a year ago. We would have thought that 2020 referred to perfect vision, but just think about how that will forever change our mindset. Uh, There is much talk about looking forward to 2021. Someone pointed out last week at the state convention that Uh, This is the only double-digit year that we will experience in our lifetimes, 2020. None of us were alive in 1919, and I don't know of any of us in the room that will be here in 2121. It should have been a unique experience. It shouldn't have robbed that definition of 2020. But boy, has it. I want to read something to you. It's a uh, political-type statement. Ugly excesses characterized the presidential campaign. Streams of empty rhetoric effectively quenched any substantive discussion of the issues. And fed the growing political disillusionment of the populace. Social critics see the darkness encroaching upon every area of life politics, education, law, medicine, the arts, even our communities, churches, and families. In all of this, of course, there is a powerful temptation to exaggerate the importance of one's own times. I have no idea whether we face the end of the West or not. History, not to mention the sovereign will of God, is more complex than we imagine. Caution is therefore in order as we attempt to trace the course of cultural decay. But caution doesn't leave me without convictions. I believe that we do face a crisis in Western culture and that it presents the greatest threat to civilization's Since the barbarians invaded Rome, I believe that today in the West, and particularly in America, the new barbarians are all around us. They are not hairy goths and vandals, swilling fermented brew and ravishing maidens. They are not Huns and Visigoths storming our borders or scaling our city walls. No, this time the invaders have come from within." We have bred them in our families and trained them in our classrooms. They inhabit our legislatures, our courts, our film studios, and our churches. Most of them are attractive and pleasant. Their ideas are persuasive and subtle. Yet these men and women threaten our most cherished institutions and our very character as a people. Who are these new barbarians? How have they so quietly and effectively invaded a nation that spends millions each year to defend itself from enemy attack? Can they be defeated? That statement was written in 1989 in a book by Charles Colson entitled Against the Night, Living in the New Dark Ages. Isn't that amazing? It, it sounds so much like today. But here we are, 31 years later, uh, facing a culture that that continues to face disillusionment and challenges uh, to the point that you just want to plug your ears and close your eyes and wish all of this confusion and chaos would go away, don't you? I've felt that way. Well, that's the way Habakkuk felt. He was a frustrated man. The nation in which he lived was a constant irritant in his heart, and he viewed it as a nuisance because of all of the moral and spiritual decay, all of the dismantling of that which is most important, and the nation had become a nuisance to him. If you've felt any of those things that that I've read or said this morning, I hope we'll be encouraged by looking to the Word of God. Because we need to look at something that's beyond here and now, something that's above who we are and where we are, And something that is absolute and absolutely timely and timeless for our day. So we're going to look at Habakkuk chapter 2. To get to Habakkuk, you'll start, an easy way to do it is start in Matthew and go back to Malachi, Zechariah, Haggai, Zephaniah, Habakkuk. That was easy enough, yeah. So let's look at Habakkuk chapter 2. I'll be focusing on the entire chapter, but we'll read the first four verses to begin the message. you recall Habakkuk has complained to God in chapter 1. God has replied to him. Habakkuk has put out his second argument against what? He's feeling and what God has been saying, and then in chapter 2, he begins with these words, I will stand my watch and set myself on the rampart and watch to see what God will say to me and what I will answer when I am reproved. Then the Lord answered me and said, Write the vision and make it plain on tablets, that he may run who reads it. For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end of it, it will speak and it will not lie. Though it tarries, wait for it, because it will surely Come, it will not tarry. Behold the proud. His soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. Let's pray together. Father, though we are removed from Habakkuk's life and his circumstances by hundreds of years, Your word is timeless and it is timely. And we praise you and thank you for that. And so, Father, today we have come into this place of worship in a uh, season of chaos and uh, craziness that we view as being unprecedented, confusing, and discouraging at best. But, Father, it's our prayer. That today, by your word, you would address not just the issues around us, but you would address our hearts by your word, that you would elevate our perspective to see things from your perspective and teach us to walk in your truth, please. So, Father, would you please um, graciously speak to us today? I have nothing to say unless you do, and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, Habakkuk hasn't moved very far forward, has he, from last week? You'll notice in verse 2 of chapter 1, O Lord, how long shall I cry and you will not hear? Even cry out to you violence and you will not save. And then you'll notice the word me recurring in verse 3 of chapter 1. Why do you show me iniquity and cause me to see trouble? For plundering and violence are before me. There is strife and contention arises. And then chapter 2 opens with some of those same personal pronouns. I will stand my watch and set up myself on the rampart and watch to see what he will say to me and what I will answer when I am reproved. Uh, it, it seems rather self-centered, doesn't it? Everything is what he's experiencing how he's processing it and, and what God might say to him and what he's going to say to God. Have you ever been talking to someone and you're trying to reason with them and you knew the whole time you were talking, they were just thinking about how they were going to respond to what you have said? That's where Habakkuk is. And if we're not careful spiritually, we can get in that same place where even when we read the word of God, we're ready to come up with an excuse or an answer regarding our behavior and our circumstances. So the first thing I want you to see in this passage is this. To be self-absorbed as Habakkuk was is to become conceited and calloused rather than consecrated and compassionate. The only person Habakkuk seems to be caring about is Habakkuk. How the circumstances in Judah Are affecting his comfort, his feelings, and his hopes and his dreams. It's it's like he's so self-absorbed with what's gone on around him and the way it is affecting his attitude that he sees no good whatsoever. He sees no future ahead of him. He is just self-absorbed and has become very conceited and calloused, and he has no compassion or concern for others because he is not fully consecrated to God and his will. And so here Habakkuk says in verse 1, you can go ahead and talk, God, but all the while you do, I'll be preparing my next cross-examination of you. I've got this figured out. You're not going to change my mind. I'm going to give you a piece of my mind as soon as you share your mind with me, in essence, is what he is saying. And if we were all honest, sharing a piece of our mind is sharing something we don't have a lot to give at times. So his focus is still on him. And his focus is filled... His perspective is consumed with objections rather than a perspective of obedience. You come to places in Scripture where someone has positioned themselves, himself or herself before God, in essence, saying, God, I am here to obey you. I don't understand. I don't know how to cope. But my perspective is obedience. Uh, But here Habakkuk has a perspective of objections. Yeah, but God. But God. But God. One thing that plagues the church many times is it's full of a bunch of billy goat Baptists that just like to butt at God with objections, and perhaps we've all been there. I'll listen, I'll stand my watch, I, I want to hear what you have to say, but I will see what I will say to you. That's Habakkuk's attitude. So what God demands is that we move beyond our objections and we move into the realm of obedience. He hasn't called us only to obey him when circumstances are agreeable. He hasn't called us only to obey him when we agree with the direction he's going to take us. But I know that God's will is not always the most pleasant, but it is always the best. Because he brings good even out of the worst of circumstances. So Ipachic is struggling, but in his experience, we are reminded of that that truth that to be self-absorbed and to have ingrown eyeballs where you can only see yourself and your circumstances in pain, to be self-absorbed is to become conceited and calloused rather than consecrated and compassionate. But here's how God speaks to him. Verse 2. Then the Lord answered me and said, Write the vision and make it plain on tablets that he may run who reads it. For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it will speak and it will not lie. Though it tarries, wait for it. Because it will surely come, it will not tarry. Here's the great truth we can draw from that. God's plan is in place and his mission is in motion. His plan is still in place and his mission is still in motion. Nothing detours his sovereign design and purpose. He has his plan in place and his mission is in motion. You see, from Habakkuk's perspective, he was trying to get God to begin something. He was acting as if God was at a standstill. He seemed to imply that God was somehow scratching his head, wondering what to do next. And so Habakkuk agreed to give him some help here. He is giving him some advice in chapter 1, but God doesn't take the advice. And God reminds him that his plan is still in place. His mission is on the move. Everything is moving toward its desired end, and it will not lie. It will be true. And so he begins to give him a vision a vision of what is sure to come. When God speaks of the future, he is more accurate than we are describing the present. Our future is in past tense to an eternal God. It's all completely different perspective for him. And so it begins in verse 2, then the Lord answered me. And from his response, we can glean that God is not looking for our approval or our advice. His plan is already in place. So God, with perfect vision of the future, begins to share a glimpse of that vision with Habakkuk. He says, I want you to write it plain. I don't want you to doctor it up. I don't want you to ease the blow. I want you to put it there on tablets just like I say it so that when people read it, they will be tempted to run for their lives because it will be overwhelming at the thought of the judgment that is to come. He was reminding Habakkuk that his silence does not imply his absence. God had not taken a leave of absence and let things get out of control. God was still at work pursuing his plan and his mission and his purposes. Here's what Matthew Henry says. God has appointed time for his appointed work and will be sure to do the work when the time comes. It is not for us to anticipate his appointments, but to await his time. God's timing is already set. God's timing is always the best. But notice the final phrases there in verse 3. Though it tarries, wait for it. Because it will surely come, it will not tarry. So he's saying, though it tarries, you wait for it. Watch and see. Because it will not tarry. This is all already in place. It's already moving forward. And I'm giving you a glimpse of what's about to happen. So always remember, although God tarries, he never varies from his purpose and his plan. God's plan is in place and his mission is in motion. Then notice verse 4. He begins to address those to whom this judgment is coming in Judah. Behold the proud... He says, take a close look at the proud. Contemplate them. Look closely at the proud. His soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. Here the Lord does something he does very often in Scripture. He divides people into two groups. You're either alive or you're dead spiritually. You're either saved or lost. You're either headed to heaven or headed to hell. No in between. So here he says, the proud have a soul that is not upright and is unrighteous, but those who live by faith express their righteousness or that they are just. That's always occurring. Sometimes it's just more visible. The darker the culture gets, the brighter Christ should shine in us. The just shall live by faith. We know from the New Testament that we're not to walk by sight, but we are to walk by faith. We are to walk by faith and not sight. What does that mean? That means we don't look at God through the lens of our circumstances. We look at our circumstances through the lens of God and his word. We know that God transcends our circumstances and transcends our life itself. And so when we begin to look at life through the lens of the word of God, it is completely different. But here's the truth that is tied to that verse. To be proud is to be faithless. To be proud is to be faithless. That's where the contrast comes in. You're either proud, you're independent of God, living your life by your ways and your design and your desires, or you have exercised faith and trust, and you have fully trusted Christ with your future in this life and in eternity. You have let go of your control, and you have given him control of your life. You have relinquished lordship of your life to Christ, and if you have relinquished lordship of your life to Christ, you are living dependent upon him, which means to walk by faith and not by sight. There's a great contrast here that we are called to separate ourselves from being proud to being people of faith. Three times in the New Testament, in one way or another, this verse is quoted encouraging people to live out their faith as children of God. And so there goes on to be a a description in detail of what the proud are like, and what will be their fate dealt out at the hand of God. In the translation that I'm looking at, each of these descriptions and designations begin with the word woe, W-O-E, woe. When you see that word in Scripture, it's like an interjection of distress It's speaking of something in face of disaster. It gives a preview of coming judgment because of certain sins, one commentary says. Woe is an expression of grief, indignation, and judgment. So here's what I like to say, not to be trite, but anytime you see... W-O-E in Scripture, you should W-H-O-A. Whoa. need to stop and look at that. Here he begins to describe the proud who were living lives without faith. Here's how it states it in verses 5 and 6. Indeed, because he transgresses by wine... Talking about the proud, he is a proud man and he does not stay at home because he entangles his desire as Sheol or hell, and he is like death and cannot be satisfied. He gathers to himself all nations and heaps up for himself all peoples. Shall not all these take up a proverb against him and a taunting riddle against him and say, Woe to him who increases what is not his. How long? and to him who loads himself with many pledges. Will not your creditors rise up suddenly? Will they not awaken who oppress you, and you will become their booty? Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the people shall plunder you because of men's blood and the violence of the land and the city and all who dwell in it. Woe to him who increases is how that section begins. When we think about those who are... Proud and faithless, it defines it here, the proud pursue pleasure towards self-destruction. The proud pursues pleasure towards self-destruction. I know what will please me. I know how to get what will please me, and I will make that decision on my own. That's the heart of a proud person. They pursue Pleasure towards self-destruction. Then the second woe is in verse nine. Woe to him who covets evil against uh, Woe to him who covets evil gain for his house, that he may set his nest on high, that he may be delivered from the power of disaster. You gave shameful counsel to your house, cutting off many peoples and sinned against your soul, for the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the timbers will answer it. the heart of, of that woe, we find this reality. The proud uses people to gain things. They are more concerned about their comfort, so they build their nest like a bird up high in safety, withdrawing from others, coveting what is not theirs. They use people to gain things. Verse 12 begins the next woe. Woe to him who builds a town with bloodshed, who establishes a city by iniquity. Behold, is it not of the Lord of hosts that the people's labor to feed the fire And nations weary themselves in vain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, and the waters will, as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who builds a town upon bloodshed and by iniquity. The proud produce sin sick cities. The proud produce sin sick cities cities. We have a few of those in our nation, don't we? Then look at verse 15. Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbor, pressing him to your bottle, even to make him drunk, that you may look on his nakedness. You are filled with shame instead of glory. You also drink And be exposed as uncircumcised. The cup of the Lord's right hand will be turned against you and utter shame will be on your glory. For the violence done to Lebanon will cover you and the plunder of beasts which made them afraid because of men's blood and the violence of the land and the city and all who dwell in it. What profit is the image that its maker should carve it? The molded image, a teacher of lies that the maker of its mold should use and trust in it to make mute idols. The proud gains victims through vicious violence. And then finally, verse 19, woe to him who says to wood, awake, to silent stone, arise. Arise. It shall teach. Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and in it there is no breath at all. The proud commit ignorant idolatry. They worship lifeless things rather than the living God. But the just shall live by faith. No matter where we find ourselves, no matter what our circumstances, we are to live by faith and trust in Jesus Christ and our future is in his hands. Well, then fourthly and finally in the passage there in verse 20 we're reminded when God breaks the silence, there is a silent hush among the people. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Just think of the context there. He said the proud make their own gods out of wood and stone. They say they are alive and they do certain things and they have this superstitious nonsense about them that trust in all of that, then it says, but the Lord, but the Lord. Contrasted with these lifeless idols that produce hopeless lives, here he says, but the Lord is in his Temple. He brings hope out of hopelessness. He brings life out of death. And He brings light out of darkness. He is the the God who makes new. He is the living, transforming God. And He says, God is in His temple. When God breaks the silence, there is a silent hush among the people. When God shows up, there's no need for us to try to explain it. There's no need for us to try to uh, dialogue about it. We just fall in hushed reverence and awe of the very presence of God. What he's saying is God is living and active where he has always been in the events and the lives of humans. He is always at work. He is always the source of our worship. He is always to be the one to whom we look. The Lord is still in his place and he is still pursuing his purposes among people. Isn't that an encouraging word? The Lord is in... His temple, let all the earth keep silence before him. Chapter 1, verse 2 indirectly, Habakkuk had accused God of being silent. He's rather verbose about God's silence. Here, God tells Habakkuk, in essence, you're the one that should be silent before my presence. Let all the earth be silent before him. Did you know there's no government or leader on the globe that intimidates the kingdom of God from God's perspective? He's still on his throne, and all the people will one day be silent before him other than bowing their knee and confessing with their tongue that Jesus Christ is Lord. He was accusing Habakkuk of uh, speaking up when he should have just been silent, basically, when Habakkuk had accused God of being silent when he should have spoken up. And so in verses 19 and 20, it's almost like there's a play on words. People have silent gods, and God silences people. Two different perspectives. An idol is a silent God, whereas our God silences people, all nations included. Here's something I read from someone writing about this passage. For Habakkuk, the message was clear. Stop complaining. Stop doubting. God is not indifferent to sin. He is not insensitive to suffering. The Lord is neither inactive nor impervious. He is in control. In his perfect time, Yahweh will accomplish his divine purpose. Habakkuk was to stand still in humble silence and hushed expectancy of God's intervention. Isn't that a great statement? So, what should we do? We should put our trust in the most trustworthy of places, and that's in. God himself. As I read that, it was almost as if those words were leaping off the page at me and perhaps they would leap off the page to you as well. Stop complaining. Stop doubting. God is not indifferent to sin. He is not insensitive to suffering the Lord is neither inactive or impervious. He is in control. In his perfect time, he will accomplish his divine purpose. We must stand in humble silence, a hushed expectancy of God's intervention. When God breaks through, When God shows up and breaks the silence, there is a silent hush among the people. So how do you cry out to God when the nation becomes a nuisance? Everyone's wanting to pick sides. Everyone's divided. Just stand still and look for God to do what only God could do. When I think about chaotic circumstances, I think of the children of Israel, large company of people leaving Egypt, and they come to the Red Sea. They are being pursued by a vast army of Pharaoh's chariots and soldiers. They have no hope and it appears they have no help. And there they are at the Red Sea. And God supernaturally parted the sea, got them across that sea to safety. And Pharaoh's armies were so close behind them that it was in that sea that they all drowned. I think about that a lot. It was when the the calamity was almost there that God opened a way and destroyed his enemies. That appears to be what the promise is here with Habakkuk. Now, perhaps you've read ahead and, and you know the rest of the story. His breathless looking at this vision completely changes his heart. When the nation becomes a nuisance, if we really think about the eternal disaster and destruction of people's lives in hell separated from Christ. It ought to change us from being calloused to compassionate with a desire to see them to come to faith in Christ and be spared of that disaster. Our attitude ought not to be they'll get what's coming to them one day. Our desire ought to be, Christ, would you come to them today and make a difference in their life? Look beyond the nuisance and see their need. And that great need is the one who has met every need in our lives, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is still in his temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. We would like to thank you for joining us for this message from First Baptist Church in Crockett, Texas. First Baptist desires to be a house of prayer with a heart for people, making a difference by making disciples from our neighborhood to the nations. If you would like more information about this ministry, please visit www.firstcrocket.org. Until next time, may God's blessings be upon you.